Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. I'm your host, James Prendamano, and we are joined today by Scott Crone. Scott's a principal at Coda Management Group. Uh, they are focused on, and he's the co-founder of One Stop Self Storage, uh, obviously focused on the self-storage uh, space. And, and there, there's a lot of neat tie-ins here, folks, we're going to get into today. Uh, self-storage is something that has uh, really taken off uh, in, in the Northeast and certainly here in New York City. Uh, so it is serendipitous timing. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, James. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. So uh, you're a shock. Is it the Chicagonian? What, what do they call <laughs> Chicago folks? Yeah, maybe stupid these days. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll dive into that. So um, let's talk about background, Scott. Uh, how did you end up in the self-storage space and, and in the real estate space? I ended up in the real estate space because uh, my parents showed up my uh, senior year of college and asked me what I intended to do. And considering I was fourth generation in the family business, I figured I'd be the one going into the family business. And they told me I wouldn't be. And I was like, oh man, who did I really piss off? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they said, no one, um, we're selling the family business. And so that was a, that was a milestone, a big shift. And uh, I had considered architecture as an undergraduate, but I, I wanted to play college sports. And so I pursued that. And then um, I thought I closed off the door, but I found out that there was other opportunities to get a master's in architecture. And so that's how I got into um, real estate. And then how we got into self-storage was when I was pursuing my master's in architecture, I got connected with a developer who was my professor and teacher. And um, he was also an architect and a general contractor. So I got to learn the understand the, the development and the business side of things. And then in 98, I started our own business um, doing development. We were in predominantly the residential side. So either in single family, multifamily or mixed use. And then the crash came and that altered everything. And that's when I was um, as a consultant asked to try to find and locate a distressed self-storage and I couldn't find it. And I began studying self-storage all the way back through the last, you know, each of the last recessions. And I couldn't find one that, you know, I couldn't find a pattern where the market tremendously dropped out underneath self-storage like you would see in commercial or multifamily or residential. So that's what began perking our interest. And we actually developed a self-storage facility in conjunction with that client and we flipped it. And that was my introduction into self-storage. Since then, we've unloaded all of our multifamily and we've been pursuing as an investment uh, only self-storage. So we covered a lot of ground there. Let's, let's take it back a bit. Where did you go to school? I got my master's from Illinois Institute of Technology. And you said you, you, you had played sports. What type of sports? I went uh, initially playing soccer. And then after three elbow surgeries, I made the, uh, the natural logical transition to football. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I, I became the place kicker and punter on the football team. Okay. So uh, at this point, you're anticipating family business. What was the family business? Diecasting. So we made parts for um, Schwinn, Ludwig Drums, the, the Army, um, and Ford, and uh, Harley-Davidson, those sorts of things. Got it. Now, um, the, the, the portfolio, I know at one point uh, was really diverse from single families, multifamilies, retail, commercial warehouse. Um, I think you had even some athletic flex spaces in the portfolio. Uh, have you skinnied that up entirely now to self-storage or are you still diversified? We have one building that's flex that's remaining, but the rest of it is all self-storage. Okay. And you start making this transition. You had noted, uh, I assume when you started to dig in and look at the models, you found self-storage to be fairly resilient. Incredibly resilient. In fact, we charted it. We, we compared um, the gross domestic product, to, which is the leading indicator for a recession. And when there's major drops to the occup occupancy level of self-storage, 
And in each major recessionary market, so from inflation to the internet bust to the housing market, and you know, COVID wasn't really a recession in the sense we only had one downward month as opposed to two consecutive quarters, but the drop was just as significant um, that we saw the occupancy drop maybe a, a point and then rebound two or three or four points. And so it's been consistently around 90% throughout that period of time. So let's educate uh, the audience a bit. You had said uh, GDP is a lead indicator in, uh, in tying to and predicting, I would, I would assume, recessions. What specifically are you looking for? What are the telltale signs? Of a recession? Yeah, well, as, as it relates to the GDP. Well, it's, it's two consecutive quarters of downward trend and, or negative trend. And so that's, that's the definition of recession, which why um, in 2020, it technically wasn't um, mm-hmm. because we didn't have that consistent two quarters of downward trend. Um, but in all the other ones, we saw either a downward or, or stable where it wasn't growing back up. And um, so th- that's, I'm just taking what the economists say is the, the definition of a recession. Okay, I wasn't sure if there were any other indicators or, or things you were looking behind the numbers that are indicative of market shifts. No, we were, we, were, we were just looking specifically at those dates. We were trying to find the dates of the recessions and then what was the correlating occupancy level of self-storage at that point in time. So uh, 90% is a, a, a ludicrously high number um, and... Uh, I would suspect that uh, you you went and you you tried to get behind the numbers a little bit. That what what what, are, what were your findings? Why is it that that self storage is so unbelievably resilient? Why is it that it's held the way it's held in the face of so many other categories, um, either losing ground or getting completely annihilated? Well, I think. <clears throat> I'll answer this in twofold because I think things have dramatically changed in in the last year. Let's just take prior to the pandemic. Self-storage is a vehicle to help people transition through difficult times. So whether that be a divorce, a death, um, you know, you're getting displaced, like kids getting, you know, having to move out of college for a period of time or they're being dislocated and you, you, you don't have the time or the ability to address all of your physical goods or possessions that you own. And self-storage offers a relief valve to address those sorts of situations in life. So you don't have to address them right away. You can take your time to do that. So those that used to be like the major leading indicators of why people use self-storage. But that doesn't take into account businesses. So for instance, 50% of our business is done through commercial as opposed to retail or residential um, buyers. Within the pandemic, the way in which we use our homes has dramatically changed. Our homes have now become our gym. They've become our classroom. They've become our office. They've become our conference room. And so in order to carve out those spaces, and you see these pictures of people like down in the basement hitting their head on pipes, this, this and that, they needed more space and self-storage offers a relief valve to do that. So as the cost of housing increases, self-storage is an economical and, and some would argue, and I would argue a green option because you don't have to buy a bigger house. You don't have to relocate. You don't have to do those things. You can just put your, your seasonal things and rotate it in a self-storage facility. In terms of supply chain issues that we've had, a lot of commercial vendors are using it to um, buffer their inventory to make sure that they stay in business. So it's become a viable option in terms of both residential and commercial um, clients. It, it's uh, fascinating stuff. You, you would think at first blush, it, it feels counterintuitive, right? The first thing to go is usually the credit cards. That's, that's the first thing people stop paying. Um, and then uh, as you go down the list of what are my essentials and non-essentials uh, on, a, on the surface, again, it, you would think self-storage just wouldn't make the cut. But what we're seeing now time and time again it does. It's an incredibly resilient product. So you guys are, are uh, operating a, uh, a company that has investments in a number of different asset typologies. Um, was it more uh, that you it really enjoyed the stability and the asset class, what it had to offer that prompted you to go so heavy into this category? Or was it in part, some of the challenges that come along with the other typologies that drove the shift? 
I think it's both. Um, and I think they go hand in hand with one another because of the fact that, for instance, um, self-storage is a predictable model. I mean, we can look at the demographics, we can study the demographics and understand supply and demand within the marketplace. Um, that's one aspect of it. When we were doing multifamily or single family, it was like the field of dreams approach, build it and see if they will come. Um, but so with self-storage, we can know if a market is good for it or not good for it. And so there's been plenty of times we've looked at a market and saw that it was way oversaturated and we pulled back. There was no point in us going forward with that. Uh, go ahead. Uh, so so in, in determining uh, a market viability, uh, is there a, a, a direct calculation or correlation? Is it 10 square feet per per individual or, or what are the metrics you look at in determining there's there's demand and there's need here? Uh, it is square foot of lockers per capita. And so generally speaking, the market average is seven where saturation is, where supply equals demand. Um, but we've seen like in the left coast and um, for East Coast down to the Florida, and we always refer to it as the East and West or um, the left and right in terms of on the map. But um, California is um, heavily saturated as well, Texas. And we've seen the market climb up to 11 and Florida, we're seeing it climb up to 13 people developing and building in the 13 uh, square feet of lockers per capita. So, you know, there's, a, there's heavy saturation in there. And those are the type of markets that we're not like running to, um, you know, people bring us an opportunity, we'll evaluate it, but we're looking at generally, if you see where we are, we're predominantly in the Midwest, the flyover States where, um, you know, our Chicago one, we bought at 1.6 and, you know, our, our ones in Ohio, we bought it, you know, two or two and a half. Um, so there's plenty of growth within that marketplace. And that's some of the things that we look for. And let's talk about um, the demography of the, the, the location. Uh, I would assume that it's not necessarily geographic boundaries, meaning one, three, five, and 10 concentric circles. Uh, I'm assuming it is, it, it, it doesn't necessarily matter the physical distance between uh, it's just straight up numbers, right? So when you're looking at those numbers, is there a particular demographic that hits the sweet spot for the consumer? Well, we do look at those radiuses. That is important. Now, if we are in a more rural area, mm -hmm. um, you know, people aren't going to be willing to drive more than, you know, 20 minutes. And now in the country, that could be 20 miles, right? Right. But in New York City, I think that's what, one block? So it's like, yeah. you know, it well, so, used to be. It used to be one block. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think it, a lot of it depends on what the market is to determine what that radius is going to be. Um, you know, and that's where if we're looking in a heavily saturated market like Chicago or New York, you know, we're not even considering five. You know, it's one in three that we're really considering because otherwise no one's going to drive five miles when they could go to someplace else that's a half a mile away. Um, that doesn't matter what the rate is. It's just too much difficulty getting there. But when we look at the the average income of the household that will dictate the size of the lockers so that we can match it up in terms of what the buying pattern is. So the more affluent the community is, they're willing to pay a higher price per square foot for larger ones. And the lower of the demographic um, in terms of medium household income, they're willing to pay a higher price per square foot. So uh, give us a, a sample, uh, uh, an ideal market. What are you looking for, for median household income? Well, we, we can do anything. We, we've looked at markets anywhere from 30 to, you know, over 70, you know, so in each of them, uh, like our one in Chicago, it was uh, closer to 40, 45. And so we made the locker smaller on average, instead of average of 90 square feet, they're closer to 75. And we find that people are willing to pay a higher price for the smaller ones because of the fact that there's, there's a bigger premium on that space. Um, our facility, which is in a very affluent community, People were, we couldn't sell out the 10 by 10s, but all of our 10 by 20s were sold out. So what we did is we took out the center wall and converted our 10 by 20s and our 10 by 10s into 10 by 20s. And then they all sold up. So as you're, you're, you're doing this analysis, it's interesting. Uh, what seems like a, a, a benign delta of 15 square feet uh, sounds like that that makes all the difference in the world, right? I guess it's all relative to the size. If you're only dealing with 75 versus 90, 15 is, you know, 17, 18, 19%. Um, 
and you're seeing with a with such a small uh, change in the square footage overall, it really does make a difference in the saturation. Not, it doesn't make a difference in the saturation. It makes a difference in the velocity in the Lisa. And okay. so as, as people, they're willing, you know, for instance, the one, the, the more affluent community, when they were renting, you know, they're remodeling their home. And so they would take everything out of their home and have the movers back up the moving truck to the facility and unload it into eight, eight lockers, all 10 by 20s. And they would have it for a year. And then when the construction was done, they would unload them and take them you know, back to their home. You know, that's not the case for someone who's, you know, let's say in a, a thousand square foot apartment and they need, you know, an extra 50, 50 square feet of storage. You know, they're not, that's not their type of situation. So that's why they're one to, they only need 50 square feet and that's what they're willing to pay for. So is there, um, do you have the capability and no, well, not the capability. Are you building uh, vertical uh, as well as, uh, you know, are these, these are drive up units? Do, are they, you know, five story buildings? What does the typical product look like? Uh, the ones that we've converted, they are drive-in facilities with a, both a loading dock interior as well as an exterior loading dock. Um, our, we have one building that is um, predominantly one story. It does have three stories in total, but 60% of it is on the on ground level. Um, our tallest building is 10 stories. So we've done anything in between. Wow. Okay. So... Um... The, the, the typical deal, right? Uh, and I know that, that's, that there is no typical deal. Everything has got its own uh, flavor and feel to it. So we, we have a, a property out here in, in Staten Island where the zoning uh, allows for retail uh, just as it will allow for storage. The, the way the zoning is written basically is you go to the maximum use and then any use group within that maximum use, you can waterfall down and put any of those uses in there. So we, we found a property that um, has turned out to be a really productive retail site, uh, but there's uh, quite a bit of FAR, floor area ratio or square mm. footage left over um, that we we are looking at and saying, gee, we're, we're bound by the, you know, the constraints of parking. You know, out here, parking is where it all starts and stops. We, while we, we have the ability to add 150 or 160,000 square feet, the challenge is for every 300 square feet that we're building, we need to add an additional parking space. And there's only so much you can fit on the paper, right? As you're, as you're sketching these things out. Absolutely. So the, the, what we were contemplating is going vertical. Let's, let's uh, fold into uh, this center a self-storage facility. The way the way we saw this, and, and tell me if I'm, I'm on the right track or, or not, uh, it felt like uh, self-storage is becoming, uh, it's changing a bit, and it felt like there would be a place for a self-storage facility in a, in a relatively busy retail center where it almost becomes part of the pattern. You need something from the locker, uh, you're gonna go pick up whatever it is, or you're gonna go have dinner, or you're gonna do whatever it is in the retail center. It almost felt like part of the pattern. Are you starting to see these facilities emerge out of these retail complexes, or is this completely off the wall? I wouldn't say it's completely off the wall. I mean, there's a lot of big um, boxes that are going dark. And um, as a result of that, um, self-storage is a natural fit because of, you know, the column spacing, the, the heights, um, the HVAC, the lighting, you know, there's not a lot to convert there. The bigger challenge is whether or not the local municipality will allow it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, both Toledo and Dayton were not in favor of us putting self-storage in the downtown markets, which is counterintuitive to us because of the fact that they're heavily dense, you know, heavy density of townhomes and condominiums and apartments. Well, and the two go hand in hand, self-storage and apartments are, you know, that's like, you know, peanut butter and jelly. I mean, they just go together. Right. Um, but they just, they didn't want the stigma of that in, in their minds, the stigma of self-storage. Um, and as I pointed out, when you drive into the city of Chicago, and you come over the Ohio Street, you know, bridge and down into the downtown loop area. The first building that you see is a self-storage building with the exact configuration that you're talking about. Retail down below and self-storage up above. Now, I will say that the major REITs that are looking to buy them 
they don't want to have or typically have a building that has mixed uses in it. They would want to have a standalone type facility because it's easier for them to operate. It's in their, you know, their business. But I think if you can condominiumize it or separate it and distinguish it, then that's a way of solving that problem. That's precisely what the intention was. We wanted to condo off that portion. Um, and we came up against uh, a, a few different challenges. It wasn't so much um, municipality. They, they, they got it and they were on board. And, and again, it was as of right, the zoning allowed for it. Where we came up against issues were as we began engaging with self-storage companies uh, and we went from, you know, the mom and pop operator right on up to some of the largest in the country, um, the model there was no 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 assurance. Nobody wanted to uh, have any skin in the game, if you will, at the onset. Uh, the 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 market is very strong. It's the second highest council uh, district for household median income. I think at this point it's it's up around one hundred twenty seven thousand. Uh, it's a good market. You know, it's it's a very well trafficked. It's got uh, center. It's got great visibility. Um, it, it checked a lot of boxes, but we struggled with, you know, do we go and, and build this facility, which, you know, could be relatively expensive here and fall on our faces. There were, there, you know, we, we, we weren't experts in this. So I'm wondering, is, is there a place, I know you're not currently in New York, but is that something where uh, folks that are listening <clears throat> could contemplate for a company like yours? Is that something you would engage in and and be a party to, uh, you know, how would that evaluation play out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, we're doing that in Florida. We're actually um, designing and building facilities for a client in, in Florida. Um, so, I mean, we've, we've done different things. We've, we've strictly been hired, we've partnered, or we've just acquired it and done it ourselves. So we've, we've done all three of those things. And your, uh, I assume part of the, the package is operations, right? You're, you're, you're running the operations of the facility. We would like to. I mean, let's put it this way. The, the main reason why we started One Stop Self Storage this past year was because we were noticing that one of the major REITs that we had hired, um, we, we launched four buildings in 2020. And, uh, you know, the distinction of trying to launch four in the, you know, in the midst of the pandemic was quite a challenge. But in each of those, in the first three, we hired one of the top three REITs in the country. And what we saw was just massive underperformance. We were seeing in two of our facilities, no growth in, in the occupancy. We were seeing increasing costs or labor by over 40%, as well as our marketing. But our conversions rates were in the 20s, 20%, just horrible statistics. And then the other one where we did have occupancy, they were under market in terms of the dollar amount. And then our costs were you know 40% higher than projected. And so the fourth one that we opened, we opened it on our own and we immediately took off and began outperforming the other three buildings. And that's where we you know, determined that it was just not sustainable to maintain that marketplace with mass, vastly underperformance and in, in increasing in cost. So that was the reason why we started One Stop Self Storage. But it's not our major business. You know, We do it to enhance our portfolio. We're not doing it as a major revenue source. So that's why we'll do it for our own facilities, but we don't do it for others. And, and just to be super clear, we're talking about it's the operations, right? That was the difference when you're operationally, you're running the facility. It, that was the, the, the magic ingredient of why one was performing and the other three were not. Yeah. For instance, I mean, I'd get an invoice from the, from the rate saying we owe them $30,000. And I would say, well, why? And uh, they said, well, because of the signage that we got an invoice for the signage, it's $30,000. And I said, well, in the contract, it says, I'm supposed to get $20,000 um, allowance from you to put the signage on the building. And the fact that contract was only 18,000 and only 13 has been installed. So why am I paying $30,000? That would imply that I'm $30,000 over the 18. And they said, well, we have, you know, we have an invoice, so it's accurate. And I, and I said, <laughs> and I said, well, why don't you send me that? And we're like, they said, well, we're a fortune 500 company. It's, it's accurate. And I said, again, send it to me. And they sent it to me and they paid off an original proposal. They didn't pay off an invoice. They paid off a quote, an estimate. And it was like that level of scrutiny was not there. And so it was just like, so when we asked them for the bills, they wouldn't provide us any of the bills to, to verify what was going on. You know, it's that level of scrutiny that, 
you know, as an operator, we, if, if you see your expenses dramatically increasing and there's no justification for them, that, that's, that's a major red flag. Yeah, uh, and, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of times you'll find in those bigger institutions, there's admin fees that are lumped on top of the actual hard costs, right? Um, we have found in a number of, of assets that we've looked at, um, sometimes it's 15, 20% tapped on top of the actual work that's being done just for administering the work. It's, it's fascinating to me that uh, sometimes even the biggest and the quote unquote best, uh, it, it's just rife with uh, inconsistencies, inaccuracies, and um, people are not paying attention quite the way they should. Absolutely. Scary, scary stuff. And, and you know, when we, we live in a world of, of abundance and we're certainly in a world of abundance, there's a propensity for those things to be magnified, right? Because it just seems like there's an endless well and an endless supply sometimes of cash on the other end of these transactions. And it just breeds uh, an incredible amount of inefficiency. So uh, what does a, a, a typical transaction look like for you guys? If I want to I wanna be involved, I want to invest, uh, walk me through what this looks like. Well, the first part is that when someone brings us a property, whether it's a broker, attorney, a, you know, someone who's looking at self-storage, whatever it may be, you know, however it comes into our funnel, we have lots of different ways that we get the funnels um, from wholesalers to brokers to, you know, you name it. Um, you know, we're, we're beginning our due diligence process right off the bat. So we're, we're looking at market saturation. We're looking at the demographics. We're looking at what are the competition is, what is the price point of the, you know, the, of the lockers, the units, all those sorts of things. And, and trying to get an understanding of what, what the, uh, the market or the, you know, the neighborhood will, will warrant. And then we began looking at the viability of that actual property. And so, for instance, the, the property that we're going to be closing on here shortly in, in Michigan, it was vastly underpriced in terms of the, uh, the rental rate. We're not doing any development on it. So it's, it's very atypical for us. We're just coming in and we're managing it more efficiently and, and improving the performance through that way. But if we're looking at the development, then we're also looking at, okay, what's it going to take to convert this building over? And so we begin that process. And, you know, if we, you know, check enough boxes, then we'll go to contract and we'll begin the due diligence. It's that point in time that we'll actually present our modeling to um, our investors. And we typically have, uh, we have a portal where all our investors are and we'll put it out there and we'll typically do like a webinar or a Zoom call to run everybody through the deal. But in, in each of those cases, at that point in time, we've already done a feasibility report. We've already done an extensive amount of due diligence that we're confident that we're going to be going through this, through this deal. And so, you know, that's what we'll do. And, you know, as we're, you know, finalizing the equity and the debt, we get prepared to close it. And then we're off to the races after that point in time. So your sweet spot uh, is in the, is in the ground up the development? Not necessarily ground up. I mean, a lot of times the buildings that we bought are when we say distress are underperforming. And so we've been able to buy them um, below replacement costs. And, in, and improve the building significantly below what it would cost to build a new one. In other cases, we are building new. And then in other cases, we're just strictly improving them or expanding them. So once your, your projects are complete, um, what has what the appetite been like? Who, who's, buying, who's buying these deals at the end of the day? Uh, who's buying them from us? Is yeah. Are, are, are you bundling them up and selling off portfolios or... That's our goal. So when we initially established it, we said we want to develop a portfolio of self-storage assets in excess of $100 million. And we, we deemed that that would be at least 10 facilities. So we're going to be going between $100 and $200 million. And, um, you know, there's mid-level REITs that are buying them. Um, we can sell them off as a package or we can sell them off individually. Um, but we're seeing, for instance, like Warren Buffett, um, Bill Gates, Blackstone, um, Berkshire Hathaway, and they've, they've all been moving into the market because they see that how recessionary proof it is. And, you know, uh, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer here, but I, I think we're heading towards a recession right now. I mean, there's a lot of indicators that are, in a, you know, pushing us in that direction, especially with the massive inflation that we've got going on and, and the unemployment situation. 
um, you know, those are a couple of major drivers, which are, I think are putting negative pressure on the economy and the feds, you know, got the interest rate way down tight. So there's only so much you can do when inflation is growing, they're going to have to release the interest rate, which is then going to slow down the, the housing market. And, you know, it could have a ripple effect. Yeah. Well, it, it will have a ripple effect. You know, you're not being a Debbie Downer. You're, you're being a realist and, and I appreciate the, the candor and the approach. There's, uh, people forget these are cycles, uh, and and you know it's interesting as we do the show once a week. Um, folks didn't want to talk about the the prospect of inflation and increasing rates and and uh, the economy slowing down, and it's been a, a process where slowly more and more guests are starting to open up to that that possibility and the, the prospect of that. And it's interesting to me because there's opportunity in all markets. Sometimes there's more opportunity when the markets kind of get cleaned up and cleaned out. And I, I think without question, um, there's some some choppy waters ahead. You know, we've, we've gone now uh, as long as we've ever gone in, in the history of the country uh, with rates being suppressed as far as they've been for as long as they have. And we've now bred almost entire generations of folks that don't know what real interest rates look like, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, when I graduated <clears throat> from college, they were, you know, close to, if not above 10. Yeah. Yeah. My, my first, my first home, uh, I started investing at a very, very, very young age. I think it was 12 and a half percent. I mean, it's just, these things happen and, and the, you know, there's a, an ebb and a flow to them, and there's a way to hedge. And, and I think that self-storage is absolutely one of those, those hedges. Um, I assume you guys, as you're, as you're taking down your debt packages, well, let me not assume, let me ask, uh, typical debt structure uh, on one of your assets, is it short-term, mid, long-term, fixed rate, variable? What does that look like on your side? Well, I, you know, as we're going through construction, you know, it's interest only and we're, we're building it up. And then, you know, our longest term that we have is a, is that we have a 25 year term um, for that began during construction, which is unheard of. I mean, that was just phenomenal terms that we got. And so that's why we chose it. Um, but typically it's like three to five years, um, depending on, you know, the asset class, we do have an SBA, um, which is longer term. So we've, we've done SBAs, we've done longer term banks. Um, we've, you know, had to go, you know, when, the markets were tight. You know, we had to go through more of the the private markets rather than the you know the local banks. And so, in each of those cases, then it's you know a shorter term loan. We're we're doing it for construction and then getting a bridge and and then a perm defined. Um, if we get once we get them stabilized, then we're looking to do a CMB type loan. Um, you know, insurance backed or collateral mortgage backed loan, which is incredibly low interest rates and longer term. So are, are you finding that uh, when you're dealing with, forget about the private market, on the institutional side, are the, the banks willing to finance the construction like an IO for construction and then roll it over into a fixed rate? Uh, are you having to go to two different providers or are the lenders converting to fixed rate once the product is delivered? Uh, both. I mean, we, we've seen it both ways. Um, you know, our one in Dayton is a, is a long-term relationship we have, and that was great. Um, in Toledo, it was designed to be that way. Um, and so, you know, but we're looking at uh, restructuring that one because they didn't give us the bridge component, like right before closing, they took out the lease up component, you know, so it made it, it makes it harder to, to operate it. Interesting. Um, you're, you're also uh, involved in, in some green technologies and, and development of, of, uh, sustainable practices is is that part of the plan here as well it is i mean that is my background and we've been we've been doing sustainability for probably 20 years now and um you know we we've built both sustainable sustainable commercial and residential properties and we've won awards um we've won um international design awards for combining design with sustainability and we've even written a book about sustainability in terms of how to do that in the residential marketplace but if you think about it I mean, the fact that we're taking underperforming commercial buildings, we're not putting them in the landfills, we're reutilizing the buildings, we're improving the buildings, but we're raising up the energy performance of the buildings 
That's how we've been able to qualify for PACE financing, which is a, a Department of Energy program. And so, you know, the fact that we put in, um, you know, better efficiency equipment, plus also motion censored and uh, lights, you know, um, that are on timers and more efficient elevators and, and HVAC equipment, we've been able to improve these buildings tremendously and, and controlling the, um, the envelope. So better insulation and taking out windows and, you know, people might not like the look of um, corrugated metal or some sort of covering over the windows. But if I have a, if I can put foam insulation on the backside of that and have a more stable environment, um, you know, you certainly don't want to see what's inside of a locker. That's not attractive. So it's like, you know, if we can control that environment better, then we're going to have a better overall economic performance of the building. So uh, you mentioned PACE financing. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's the Property Assessed Clean Energy Act. And so if you if you have a building and it's performing at this level of efficiency and you go and improve it, the, the, the money that you spend on that can be um, qualified or used with PACE financing, which is a form of equity in the sense that the interest payments and the, re, the repayment of that is spread out over the amateurization life of the, of the asset. So an HVA system, if it lasts 20 years, then that will be amortized over 20 years. But instead of it being under below the line item in terms of an interest payment, it gets applied to your real estate taxes as a special assessment. And so we can, we can carry that forward to the person who buys it, or it can be paid off. And so therefore, it's considered above the line item and not considered by equity by banks. And this is... Um... So that that's that's fascinating, and and we don't hear much about it. And real estate taxes out here have become completely unmanageable. The the real estate taxes are absolutely out of control. Uh, so it, it it almost functions, it seems, as as an abatement of of sorts. Where um, is there? when they're determining this, is there certain certifications, lead certifications or anything that you have to achieve to be eligible for it? Yeah. Lead is at, lead is actually very hard to obtain in, in terms of a conversion or things like that, because in order to get enough points from lead, you have to have um, duplicity and redundancies built into your, your sustainable efforts. Um, so the answer to that is no. Um, you just have to show like, if your HVAC system is performing at this level, let's say it's 70% efficiency and it's costing you this much money and you raise it to a 90% efficiency, then you qualify. And if it saves you money, that's, that's the, so you have to have an energy assessment done. And if you can show that you're improving the energy performance of your building, you qualify. And have you done this in multiple States? Is this a federal thing or a state thing? It's a federal program implemented at the state level facilitated by the local municipality. Okay. Uh, and what, what markets are you operating in today? So we did it in um, Toledo and Dayton. And then we were, we, we were offered it in um, Kentucky and we chose not to do it. And uh, offered it by the municipality or by a, a tax professional or who? The municipality was pushing it. They wanted us to do really? it. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So, uh, just out of curiosity, what 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 are the drawbacks? Why would why would you not be interested in in just because the the investment didn't warrant uh, the updating of the assistant the systems? Oh no, their efficiencies it, at that point, or it clearly did. I mean, there's no air conditioning in the building and portions of the building, so it's, <laughs> we're taking it from zero to you know very high. Um, it was more of our lender didn't want it. And so the fact that not every lender wants it. So you have to find lenders that are PACE compatible. Got it. Oh, that's a, a great tidbit there, folks, as we all find ways to try and combat and battle back these taxes that are, seem to have gotten completely out of control. So there's, uh, there's two, really two mechanisms by which PACE is implemented. It's either through the local port authority or there's privately funded PACE programs. And so in the two that we did in Ohio, they were, they were privately funded. And that was what, that's the way in which Dayton was withholding our, our uh, facility is that they were withholding our PACE financing because they wanted retail on the ground floor versus self-storage. Got it. Got so it. we were zoned as of right, but they were withholding a program that we were legally entitled to. <laughs> and all they had to do was sign off on it. 
they weren't processing. It was just like, we're going to pass this through and pay them on the real estate taxes. And they wouldn't do that. So uh, this is becoming a common theme on the show. And I, I try to stay away from the redundancy where I can, but in, in our market, we can't. Uh, when, when you're doing your analysis of, of where you're, you're looking to make the investments and where you're looking to build these facilities out, how much of a role does uh, the legislative risk or the, the legislative body play in determining where you're investing? Big role, because that's obviously going to be impacting uh, demographics, right? Um, we're, we're seeing the migration outside of Illinois. We're seeing people, you know, we've lost the second largest city in, in Illinois to people leaving the state. So, yeah. you know, those are definitely factors that we take into consideration. And are, are there, uh, I know we covered it before we went live, but what, what markets are you currently in now? We're in Milwaukee. We're in Chicago. We have uh, Toledo, Dayton, uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, we just closed on one in Lynchburg, Virginia. We have in Maine and um, we're acquiring one in central Michigan. Any markets on the horizon that, that you have your eye on, you're interested in, in pursuing? Uh, well, we're in the, we, we're just completing a lot of those transactions. So we have a, a lot of our plates. So we're, we're also going to be building in Florida and we're also uh, helping to build in uh, North Carolina. And I would assume um, as you're identifying these, these markets, uh, is the population shift that's occurring now that's been very well documented, is that playing a large role in your analysis or is it more of a snapshot of what's there today and, and that's what you're underwriting it based on? No, we look at the trends. You know, I mean, when we, when we were first brought Toledo and Dayton, we thought like, you know, those are those seem like you know very repressed economies, and we found out that they're actually growing. And so, you know, the fact that they are growing, um, what attracted us, and like Louisville has had twenty percent growth rate over the last or ten percent growth rate in the last twenty years. So, for us, that was a very strong market, and that's why we we went into that market. So we're always looking to make sure that the the, the market is growing versus um, regressing. And uh, as emerging markets continue to be just part of kind of the, the common, uh, you know, it seems like everybody's talking about them and everyone's exploring them. Is there a, a software or a program or anything in particular that you rely on when analyzing a market? Or is it more of like a homegrown formula and you have your own way of, of doing that? No, we're, we're definitely relying upon um, software and programs that do that. Um, and then conversely, those programs rely upon other demographic programs that are you know, specific. So when we look at it, we're looking at square foot per capita, which also has the demographics, which also has the growth rate, which is you know, pulling data from a bunch of different sources. And then obviously our feasibility experts, um, they're pulling from their sources as well. So our reports will have both the demographics in terms of growth, as well as the saturation levels. Interesting. So, you know, th this doesn't seem to be, I mean, I, I guess it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been pressure tested enough times to, to accept that self-storage is, it really is an incredibly resilient um, uh, typology as, as we contemplate, where do we go as inflation is coming um, and is here, right? Where, where do we place our our assets and our investments, folks, and self-storage just seems to, to be one of those great, great places to invest. We, we have, um, self-storage was doing quite a bit of, of work out here in, in New York, Scott, and we found um, two years ago, then Governor Cuomo um, removed the tax abatement eligibility from the state budget for self-storage facilities kind of took a, a lot of people by surprise and it put a real dent in the pipeline. Um, have you seen any type of uh, legislation like that in other states where they're selectively trying to slow this down or has it been overwhelmingly or, or predominantly supportive? Um, I wouldn't say it's been predominantly supportive. Like I said, we ran into you know pressures in, in Toledo and Dayton. Um, I think New York is very aggressive. And I mean, not only was that tax, but then also taxing on, um, I believe it was IRA or they're talking about removing the opportunity zone. 
And I, I will say that, you know, over 50% of our investors are, are investing with us because of the tax strategy, you know, between opportunity zones that we've offered, uh, historic tax credits, and then cost segregation, um, as well as IRA investment. You know, those are the main components of which a lot of our investors are utilizing to shelter cash, um, to shelter their capital gains. And so, you know, not only are we appreciating and growing, but we're also offering them um, the tax incentives on the backside. So folks, what Scott's talking about is, uh, you know, we've talked about the Opportunity Zone enough on the show for people to have a, a good understanding of it. New York actually decoupled from the federal benefit. So uh, one of the, the absolute pillars of the program uh, were, were some of the benefits with the, the tax deferral uh, and downstream, if you're in it for 10 years or longer. Yeah, not just deferral, complete <clears throat> removal. But yeah, they, they've, they've decoupled from the, the federal benefit, which uh, the program was created to spur investment in demographic uh, areas that, that really would have benefited from it. Uh, and self-storage was one of those asset classes that was performing very, very well um, and New York City just pulled out of the program. Um, not not sure even still quite how they they did it, but they've decoupled from the program. And what we've seen uh, for the folks out there that are listening and have the ability to influence, um, this should be revisited because we are seeing a significant amount of uh, QOZBs and uh, QOZFs that have just shifted strategy and moved uh, their investments to other states because they're welcoming them with with open arms and and uh, I didn't realize Scott that that you guys are are taking uh, qualified money and also as part of the investment strategy uh, it, it's been a, a we found it to be a great program absolutely we've we've implemented on three of our projects um, so that'd be Toledo Dayton and Louisville and. Um, you know, for, I, I know how they did it. They just said that you don't get the tax advantage on your personal tax returns if you're in New York, and um, which is stifling because that that's you know, not only what, what I don't really get is it, this was created in the Obama administration and not implemented, and then Trump basically took the exact same program and implemented it, got credit for it. But then because people hated Trump, they began attacking the program, even though it was a Democratic program. And it was yeah. the most bipartisan uh, act that was passed. It was like equally supported on both sides of the aisle. And then when Biden was coming in, he was he began looking at attacking it as well. And I was like, hold on, if you're attacking 1031s, you're attacking opportunity zones, you're attacking IRAs, and you're raising your capital gain tax, you're taking away every single form of investment in the real estate market. And if we're not heading towards a recession, that will massively push us into recession. I mean, the, this, these are the foundational pillars of real estate investing. And if you're going after all those four pillars, you're just going to kill the market. Yeah. So not a lot of folks know that, but Scott is spot on. This was a, a program. I, I believe it was uh, Kane out of, uh, was it South Carolina or North Carolina? Was South, one Carolina. Of the, South Carolina was one of the, the original or authors of, of the bill. And this was uh, an Obama initiative. Um, and, and I think that for, for just political reasons, it was, it was, uh, attacked and unfortunately it, it is, it has led to just through our little shop. Uh, we know of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that are being shifted out of the state, uh, just so that they could take advantage of, of the program, which again, it, it wasn't a one party or the other, as Scott had said, this was widely received and recognized as one of the most bipartisan initiatives to come out uh, in, a, in quite some time. And unfortunately, it became a bit of a political football and, you know, folks are paying the price for it at this point. Yeah, the, the author of it was, his name is actually Steve Glickman. And he was, he was working in the Obama administration. And, you know, he was, as he said, I was twiddling my thumbs because it wasn't going anywhere. And until Trump, you know, haphazardly referred to it and to dodge a question, according to Glickman, who's the biggest anti-Trump person out there. These are his words, not my words. And he goes, I hate Trump on everything except for this. This, I love him. Everything else I couldn't agree with him on. And um, when Trump mentioned it in an interview or a Q&A session, 
his phone lit off the hook and it, it just got legs and it was passed and was implemented. It's one of the first things that was passed in the, and we, that was passed in November and we closed on our, our facility in September of the next year, uh, which we implemented in OZ. And so we were literally calling the IRS to find out how they were going to implement the program. So that's how we, that's how we got involved with it. Wow. So, you know, this is not a, a political statement. It's not a political show. There's nothing to do with it. It's just that that's, that's how government is supposed to work, uh, where programs like this jumpstart uh, initiatives, especially in places that, that need the investments most. And again, hopefully someone out there is, is listening. We screamed and yelled about it, but it was too late, you know, out here. The, the, the ship is, has sailed, as, as they say, it, uh, on, on that initiative. But look, it's a new day. There's new leadership. So, so perhaps there's an opportunity to revisit it. Scott, how do, how do folks get in touch with you? I think this is a super exciting program. I, I love what you're doing. How do, how do folks find you? I appreciate that, James. So you can reach out to us at info at CODA, C-O-D-A-M-G for managementgroup.com. That's info at CODAMG.com. And if um, someone emails us or references the show, and we will then send them a free feasibility report that we've done on our Dayton project. So it's not something we're, you know, it's completed, we're open, we're running it. Just historical, you know, report that we have that we can show people why to get involved in self-storage and why we chose that specific market. And we're happy to give that to anybody who is, uh, references the show. Oh, that, that's amazing, folks. Uh, you'll find the links down below. Uh, please, please take them up on it. This is a, a, a heck of an interesting way to, to hedge and, and, and get ahead if you can on, on some of the things that we think may be coming down the pipe. Scott, thank you so much for the time today. It was a great guest, super informative. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. As always out there, everybody, please stay safe.